Hello, and welcome to the She Flourishes podcast, a weekly soul-stirring conversation that lifts you out of the funk and into the flourishing life, so you can live life as the best version of you. I'm your host, Brenda Jasmine. For the past 11 years, I've been coaching women and leading personal development workshops as a speaker and mindset coach. She Flourishes is an extension of those workshops and conversations and is designed to help you create the flourishing life that you were meant to live. Let's get started. Hello, I am so excited to have a very special guest with me today on the podcast. Today I have, this is our second male guest on the She Flourishes podcast, and um He is someone who actually was my teacher in my Certificate in Applied Positive Psychology. His name is Dr. Greg Evans, and he is a positive psychology expert, and he helps organizations and schools to implement positive psychology programs and assessments, and I am just thrilled to have him here today. So welcome to the show, Greg. Thanks, Brenda. I know we're both busy and uh, if this is what it takes to uh, sit down and catch up and and talk positive psychology for for an hour or so, that's that's a really solid use of my afternoon. So thanks. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And um, yeah, and Greg knows that um, I can talk and we can talk about positive psychology for hours. Um, We had in our, um, I remember in our positive psychology class, Greg, we were in Toronto and we were uh, meeting um, with our class and you had a class, I think there were 25 women in the class, right? And so uh, Greg was so great at, you know, every time there was a topic, we we had a lot of talkers in our group and Uh myself being one of them. And um, every time you brought up a topic, we all had lots to say about it. So I do know we uh, we are used to having lots of conversations about all of this, although you're a very good listener, but I'm going to get you to do most of the talking today. <laughs> <laughs> I may have a few questions for you, but that class, okay. I, I've got really positive memories of that first class, uh, yeah. you know, going into it. And, um, and it was challenging uh, to get through all the content <laughs> Yes, <laughs> with all the great discussion. But one thing I do yeah. remember is there was, uh, there was lots of curiosity and, and a yeah. great deal of humor, uh, in terms of, uh, the discussions we have. So yeah, I've got some really positive memories of that experience. Yes. Yes. And you're such a good teacher. And so I did mention to everyone that, so your doctor, Greg Evans, and, and Greg is very humble, by the way. So, uh, he doesn't even often mention that. Um, and I said to you before, Greg, if I had my PhD, I think I'd be telling everyone. Um, but maybe you can tell us a little bit more about, um, what your PhD is in and kind of how you got into positive psychology. Yeah, I, I, I actually did my master's degree in sport and exercise psychology. And was and for a time was I was, I was working with high performance individuals and teams. Um, and just at that time in my life, it, it, it this creeping, I, I don't know, just something came up of of is this pursuit of the people I was working for is it leading them to more flourishing lives? Um, and so I had all those questions, and um, and they they were sort of kind of creeping in. And at at one point, I was I was. I kind of had a really early career crisis. Um, you know, am I going to spend my time helping people, you know, score an extra goal a game or, or, you know, up their performance or their times or that sort of thing, uh, which I thought was important. Um, or what's the point? You know, what's the point? And I, and I thought, okay, um, is the point flourishing? Is it, is it well-being? 
And then rather than studying what leads to high performing athletes, maybe I have to see like, who are the Olympic athletes of happiness? Um, and at that point, I, I took a job uh, working with the Special Olympics in, uh, in Benin in West Africa. And I, I didn't know what, it's a French speaking country. I didn't know what books would be available. So I took a bunch of, of English books and one of them was Authentic Happiness by, by Martin Sligeman. And at that time I, I, I thought, yeah, this, there was just annoying. It's like, this is, this is what I want to do uh, more of. Um, and so went to, um, went to, you know, after that time in, in West Africa, I started looking for PhD programs. There was an opportunity at the University of Queensland in Australia, near, in Brisbane, Australia. Um, not a bad Whoa, place to be not at yeah, all. doing your, your PhD. Um, I thought it would take me three years. It took me five. It's a distracting place. Um, uh, so I took a couple of victories laps out there, but uh, thoroughly enjoyed that experience. And, and we really looked at a, a program of um, psychoeducational program, as well as a, a mind-body training program to see you know, again, see if we could give people the the knowledge of of what most likely leads to flourishing for the average person, um, but also the training to actually rewire the mind and body towards a, a happier disposition um, through through some uh, positive psychology based interventions as well as physical activity and and that sort of thing. So uh, we tested out those those interventions and and found they had some success um, in, in terms of improving the knowledge and and practice of well being. That is so cool. And I love how you call it the, the Olympic athletes of happiness. That is so interesting. And so, yeah, you would think, oh, if people that are at the, you know, these um, elite athletes, like, are they really happy? Or, you know, what is it that makes people happy? So that's so fascinating that that's how you got into positive psychology. And I think it's interesting, too, how you you brought in that mind body element, I guess, if you're so you're, you're looking at exercise and high performance physically, and then it's almost looking at, you know, what's our, how does our brain have high performance? Or how do we, you know, have that high performance with our well being, um, our mental well being as well? Yeah, and one of the things that we, we sort of focused on early on was the difference between um, knowing what leads to happiness or, or flourishing and experiencing flourishing are kind of two different things. And one of the early things that we, we sort of found was uh, some of the research on ethicists, uh, for example. So they they and, and I thought maybe that that may translate to to positive psychology as well. So they looked at um, you'd assume that somebody that has a, a PhD in ethics would be, for example more ethical. It would lead to more ethical mm -hmm. behaviors, but yes. they've done the measurements on it. They've done the measurements uh, to see if, if uh, you know, people compared to the people to an unrelated sort of uh, postgraduate degree compared to an ethicist is their difference in terms of their ethical behaviors. So they tested them on all sorts of things like uh, how often they call their parents, you know, do they, do they participate in, in, in elections and civic elections? They, they measured whether they believed in, um, vegetarianism, for example. So ethicists uh, were more likely to believe a vegetarian uh, lifestyle was was a more ethical lifestyle, but more, no more likely to be vegetarians. Um, they also things like the most interesting one is they looked at uh, textbooks that were stolen from the library. And ethics books are stolen at a disproportionate amount compared to other books. Uh, so <laughs> like what more, the, more of the ethics books are stolen? Then? Yes. So what <laughs> So what they, they thought was is that ethicists were better at justifying their unethical behavior, um, not necessarily leading towards more ethical behavior. Even things like they looked at um, how well people cleaned up after conferences, uh, for example, and there was no difference. Uh, so there was, there's all these, and 
even way back, like were ethicists less likely to, to, to join the Nazi party, for example, or all these other things. It's, they're no more likely to lead those behaviors. So here you had these group of people that were as knowledgeable as ethics as anybody that's perhaps ever lived, but no more able to live ethically based on that in-depth understanding. So we thought it's, it's not just academic understanding, but it's the embodiment that we, we want to sort of get to. So what's the kind of training that needs to take place to, to in this case, be a, to lead to a happier disposition, not just better ethics, but again, knowing what leads to happiness is not the same thing as experiencing it. The other example is, is um, physicians. So physicians, 40% uh, leave sedentary um, uh, lifestyles, uh, unhealthy lifestyles, overweight. Um, so here you have you know, a group of people, again, know more about physical flourishing than anybody else, but when it comes to applying it in their own life, may not be as uh, you know any better than the average person in terms of implementing it. So one of the things we really want to focus on is, is not just knowing what leads to happiness, but how to actually embed it in our lives that actually improve our, our overall experience uh, you know, of, this, of this, this life. So are people who study positive psychology happier and more likely to be flourishing? The results would say yes. I am skeptical <laughs> a little bit, you know, on on some of that. Um, but but obviously, it's it's the people that are that are applying it in a useful yeah. way. So yes. one of the things I one of the things I worry about positive psychologists, like for example, I could when I first started studying it in my own life, I could see how this information was affecting my life in a positive way. Um, but it got a certain point where it became again purely academic. I was learning new things, but I wasn't learning new things that I was applying. I was just learning new things that I felt guilty about not doing. Right. You increase lists of more things. Yes. So kind of this paradox is it, it wasn't leading at a certain time, at least for me, as, as more tools to develop well-being. It was just leading to more regret of all the things that I wasn't doing. So again, how to, we can't do everything, no. you know, how prioritizing all of this stuff. And if you're like me, you have uh, lots of people on your social media, lots of people you talk to that are talking about well-being. And again, is it leading towards more, more well-being or is it leading towards more regret of the things that we're, we're not doing? Um, I think that's another thing that, that positive psychologists have to keep, <laughs> keep yes. in mind. Yes, it's so true. And, and, you know, we're human, just like everyone else. And, and I think um, when it comes, you know, people will think, oh, Brenda, you must be happy all the time. And I don't know if you get that, Greg. And, and it's like, you know what, um, I feel it's like you're saying it's the application of it. And I have to work at it. Like I have to consciously think like, am I implementing and you can't implement everything, but what am I doing and what's working and to really be conscious of it. Um, it becomes, I think, easier the more you apply certain things. Um, but I still like it's that negativity bias is so strong, right? That um, yeah. and that's just part of being human that, you know, but I do, I think what you're saying about the applied, and that's what's so great about what you taught us was all about the applied positive psychology. And I remember you saying to me when I started teaching positive psychology after I graduated um from the program with you, um, and I was teaching it, and you said to me, Brenda, like, I'm so happy you're teaching, like, you find it's different now that you're teaching it, like, you're really internalizing it. And I don't know if you remember that conversation we had. Um, but uh, yeah, and it was so true, like, it's like with anything, right? Once you it's one thing to learn it, and it's another thing to apply it in your own life, but teaching it really definitely, definitely has has helped me with that. There's a whole bunch of evidence showing too is that the, the the knowledge base that we believe our audience is at will change how much we prepare and how much we know for that particular audience. So um, 
we, we tend to they, they do the experiments when they, they say, how much do you think the other person knows? Um, and and the, the level that we raise to um, teams to adapt to it. If we think people are more knowledgeable, we prepare more. And so the best thing, best way to learn something, I do believe, is to teach it. Um, yeah. is, is to really embed it as, as, as one of those practices. Yeah. So yeah. getting a chance to teach it as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, absolutely. And I was, I feel so lucky that I got to learn, learn it from you. And I know that um, you, you've really helped me and how I teach in the world. And um, yeah, I just, I love that I got to learn all that. So as those of you listening can tell, Greg and I can go on and on about <laughs> We yeah. really love positive psychology uh-huh. and talking about it. And we haven't even introduced our topic today yet, um, right. which definitely is positive psychology. Um, one of the things that um, that I really wanted to talk to you about today, Greg, was um, I've listened to you actually give a couple of talks. One was at the um, Flourish uh, Positive Education Conference um, back a couple of years ago. Actually, I think just before COVID, we had that conference where I heard you speak. And then again, I heard you speak recently at um, an elementary school to parents about this whole idea of fragility or anti-fragility and this whole idea of like, are we over coddling our children? And what is it that we can be doing as parents um, to help our, our young people and you know, as you know, um, it's mainly, you know, women who are um, listening to these, um, listening to the She Flourishes podcast. And so I know you had some great ideas there. And um, so definitely wanted to talk to you about some of the experience. And I just have to tell people um, this story about you. I just, it just popped into my mind when I'm, so Greg and I were both speakers. I don't know if you remember this, Greg, Greg and I, this will tell you about the kind of guy Greg is. So we were both speakers at this Flourish Positive Education Conference at Ridley College in St. Catharines. And so I was a speaker and Greg was a speaker, but like Greg was on the big stage kind of speaker. And I was on the little like breakout classroom kind of speaker. And um, so everyone, all the speakers got these beautiful red ribbons on their name tag. I think they were red. Anyway, it was a a beautiful ribbon on the name tag that said speaker. So as you're walking around the conference, everyone knows you're a speaker. So for some reason, I didn't get a ribbon. Do you remember this, Greg? Yes. (laughs) I didn't get a ribbon on my badge. And so I went up to Greg and I was I was going up to the organizers saying, um, yeah, I didn't get a ribbon. And they said, we're out, we're out of speaker ribbons. You're out of luck. And so I said to Greg, yeah, I'm speaking, but no one, no one knows I'm speaking. And you were so sweet. Greg took the ribbon off his badge and you gave me your ribbon. And I just, I almost feel teary because that was just like, that's the kind of guy you are. And that was just so thoughtful of you. And so um, I will never forget that. And I still have that ribbon. So thank you, Greg. (laughs) Well, and thank you for telling that story too. I do appreciate it. Yeah. It puts me in the best light here. (laughs) Well, and it says a lot about how humble Greg is and about my ego and meeting. I, I needed everyone to know I was a speaker. <laughs> no, <laughs> so, you earned it for sure. So, Greg, so talk to us a little bit about. So here we are. Um, we uh, we're going to be. Um, you know, kids are going back to school, and you know, I know one of the things that people are talking a lot about these days is this, you know, idea of helicopter parenting and, you know, what is it? And and, and we've seen a change, right. in how parents 
Um, and we're both parents, right? And like how we're seeing what we're doing and what other parents are doing. So maybe you can talk a little bit about what is it that you see happening when it comes to this whole idea of how maybe parents are are maybe helicopter parenting or over parenting and and why that's potentially a concern. Yeah, yeah. I think um, if people are looking for resources on this, like the there's a wonderful book by uh, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff. Uh, it's called the, the Coddling of the American Mind. And really, they're looking at how um, really good intentions, um, our intention to kind of protect our kids, um, have led to bad ideas in, in terms of, of some of the some of the practice. So our effort, it seems that our effort to protect our children is one of the very risk factors for the very things we're trying to protect them from. Uh, particularly when it comes to things like like anxiety and depression, uh, uh, for example. So it is kind of, um, we talked about helicopter parents. They don't seem to be as bad. There's people that overschedule and, and, and skill and drill and, and bring that into it. That doesn't seem to be have as big an effect uh, in terms of, of uh, subsequent anxiety and depression levels as bulldozer parents. Mm, parents that try oh. to take away all the all the, the the struggles and challenges and usually well-intended because you know they want their kids to be happy and they want them to succeed um but can it's you, kind sorry, of sorry can i stop you for a moment sure. um so what is the difference between a helicopter parent and a bulldozer parent so a helicopter parent will kind of always be around and make sure that they're make sure and they're doing what they're supposed to do um it, it's also kind of this tiger mom or tiger dad type thing that they're they're trying to to give their kids as many advantages as possible. So they'll overschedule them. Um, they'll, they'll be involved in, in all of these activities and there'll be a lot of skill and drill in, in hopes of giving them advantage. There'll be a lot of extracurriculars. There's, you know, this, this element of getting them into, you know, to that next, that next level. So um, that, that has its problems, but it, it also has its benefits. Um, whereas you look at bulldozer parents where it's just like any, any sort of challenge, any sort of a negative emotion, any sort of, um, disagreement or exclusion that they swoop in and make sure that their kids aren't dealing with that. And you know, what, what they're basically saying is, is that it's kind of like, in a certain way, it's kind of like taking the, the weights out of a gym and expecting kids to get stronger. That if they don't have, they have certain brain expected developments. Most of human development happens outside the womb. Like our, our children are not fully formed in terms of their neocortex until mm. 26. So it takes until 26. So 26 years old, wow. so the majority of our efforts, because, um, you know, human babies are, are, are helpless. So one of the examples they give is, is language. If you deprive kids of language, either they're neglected, terrible situations, they're neglected, or they're um, some even raised by animals, like these extreme cases, um, they're not getting certain, um, certain verbal um, language inputs. They're not hearing as many words. You know, there's a certain critical language period development, that if they're not hearing a certain amount of words there, that they probably won't reach their capacity for language. Um, they'll certainly improve. And what they're saying is the same thing when it comes to resilience to some degree, that the brain is expecting all sorts of scrapes and bumps and bruises, all sorts of betrayals and all sorts of failures and all sorts of challenges and difficulties. And if you don't give children those inputs, they don't develop maximally. Um, so there's this, this question, this question comes up of, um, what leads to resilience? And the science is telling us that the very inputs that lead resilient to more resilience for one child also leads to less resilience for another, depending on their background. Oh, so, interesting. 
So certain kids, for example, um, when they when they look at this, they look at social economic st status. So the top third and the bottom third, and it's not really social economic status, but it's, it's also what it's associated with. So the top third would would typically be in that overscheduled, overprotected, skill and drill. Parents trying to give them every advantage possible. Sixty percent of new of the increases in in um, anxiety and and depression cases in children is happening in that top group. 60% of the anxiety and depression issues are happening with those kids who the increased levels previously so are happening in that top that top level where the parents so, there's a lot of demand for high achievement and okay yeah. high achievement the other thing is that you're taking away some of the challenges that are necessary for them to grow um uh, to, to to grow and, and mm -hmm. to develop so in some ways that we're actually and then you have the other group the other group usually have what they, they call is there's there's some 10 adverse childhood risk factors. So you can look at the adverse um, childhood risk factor um, uh, surveys that, that, that show them. And then if kids have, um, if they have three or more of these, they're the outcomes. And so there are things like, like uh, abuse and neglect and um, household dysfunction, drug use in the household, uh, divorce, like all sorts of uh, things that if kids are exposed to those things, um, they don't grow from them typically on average. It, it leads to less resilience. So there seems to be kind of a moral imperative to get rid of these risk factors because um, the more children are exposed to them, they don't grow from them. They, they, they typically uh, revert. So for a certain child that's experiencing those adverse childhood risk factors, they need more support, more supervision, uh, more structured activities, less stress, <laughs> less difficulties. Um, in the top group, they're saying um, do more by doing less. Allow them to fail, allow them to to take risks, interpersonal risks, um, help them manage that, of course, but um, but but not just bulldoze them out of the way that knowing that you're not helping them um, by taking those things away and, and sort of maybe exposing them to a little bit more challenge, appropriate challenge uh, uh, for them early on. So mm -hmm. this is the, the this is why people get resilient so wrong sometimes is because yes. The very opposite input leads to more for one will lead to less for the other. Um, right. So recognizing recognizing the individual and, and and basing a response based on on their unique circumstances can, can make a big difference in terms of building uh, building the resilience of uh, of the future generation. So mm -hmm. as we're finding now Gen Z. Um, I, I, I imagine they'll, they'll they'll develop it over time, but they're not getting the inputs early on. So they're they're things like they're waiting longer to drive. They're waiting longer to date. Uh, they're spending way more time with their parents. Uh, they have way more supervision. Um, they're not getting a chance to sort of grow and explore um, as much as previous generations. Free play. So what what down. age? Um, what age is Gen Z? Gen Z. What what age is that? So they would just they would be the ones. That, now some of them are graduating from college. I'll have to get the, okay. the actual. Yeah. Like, just the actual, um, I'm trying to think where my kids fit in. Um, Okay, interesting. So this is this is fascinating. And this is why um, it's so important to not take things at face value, right? When you think, yeah, like, so for some kids, certain things are decreasing um, their or is are um, decreasing their resilience, but par but it depends on the type of family um, or, or what's happening around them in their environment. And yeah. can you just say more? Because I know we're going to have some parents listening. I, I want to talk more about those two areas or those two types of um, environments the kids are growing up in. So um, you said, so one is where, I think you said three or more factors, because we probably have people listening that, you know, maybe they're thinking, I think you mentioned divorce was one of yeah, the areas yeah. and we might have some yeah. parents that are thinking, oh no, like, you know, that, that, you know, can you say more about that, that 
Like what is it? I think you said they have to have three or more factors for their resilience to really be affected. Yeah. Yes. And and each one of these can be mitigated, particularly divorce can be mitigated through through certain through certain actions and behaviors. So if you're decreasing the conflict uh, um, b- between parents that, that the children are exposed to, um, you know, if both are supporting the relationship with the other parent, should that be appropriate? Like there's no abuse or neglect or that sort of thing. Is that, um, and there's lots of different ways that that can look, uh, lots of different parenting schedules and, and such that can be successful. Um, but if you can mitigate the factors of divorce uh, almost completely, um, you know, through the through, through some, some mitigating um um, um, common ways uh, just in supporting their relationships uh, with the parents and the, and the families between um, uh, in cases of separation and divorce. So if you okay. are in that situation, it's, it can be, and there's all sorts of evidence where they can have, you know, virtually the same, same outcomes as, as um, a so-called intact families. Okay, good. I know um, some people are breathing a sigh of relief upon hearing <laughs> yes, that. Um, and then Let's talk some more about these kids because I'm I'm having a feeling that <laughs> I'm probably putting myself in that one category with the, the over-functioning parents or whatever we yeah, want to yeah, call yeah. them. Um, that's, that's my impulse too. I've got to it's fight hard it. to fight against it, right? And especially, and it's even worse when you see the other parents doing it. And yeah. it's and I have to say, Greg. So my son, I I, I just yesterday turned. Uh, 18. So I am now the parent of two adult children. Although now that you're telling me I have to wait till they're 26, I guess I'm not, (laughs) I'm not out of the woods yet. They're not fully, (laughs) fully, uh, I'm not, I'm not out of the woods. Um, But um, I have to say like, even as a parent and um, at the school, like even the way things are set up now, um, the school is calling us as parents, even in high school, or you're getting emails from parents, even when they're in high school about, you know, your son has this, you know, assignment due or, or, you know, this is going on or, you know, all these phone calls and, and, or emails and and all this communication. And I have to think like, when I was growing up, my parents were not getting information from my high school teachers about whether I had an assignment or a test. So I find it, and yet, so because we're getting these emails, then it makes you feel as a parent like, oh, what am I supposed to, I guess I'm supposed to be doing something here because the, they're setting us up, like the teacher wants us to know, or other parents are now, you're, yeah. you might have even missed the email and other parents are talking about it. So I find that times have changed where it's almost like these these institutions or, you know, we're actually more is being demanded of us as parents. And so um, I find that sort of interesting how not only is it our inclination, but it's almost like our society is putting more of an expectation on us as parents to be more involved. Yes. And I think the biggest thing when, when you're talking to parents about this, um, especially like, like say, letting your kids, letting your kids go out and, uh, and, and play unsupervised. Yeah. You know, as we do, for, for example, as like, I, I have some hesitancy to doing that, not because I don't think my, my daughter can handle it, but how am I going to be judged as a parent mm-hmm. uh, by other parents? Um, so the, one of the things is to get around, how do we get around the judgments of the other parents um, in order to do the best for our kids? So one of the examples that Jonathan Haidt gives is, um, you know, to, to kind of have both the safety and sort of the exploration and the free play. Um, they've decided like have certain parents do things like they'll rent out a gym. Uh, they'll get all the kids to show up to the gym. They won't plan any activities for them. They, they get to organize their own activities themselves and they will, they will go to a coffee shop across the street 
Um, they, the kids know where they are. And they say, if anything significant happens that you come, you come get us or you phone us. Uh, but until then, uh, you're on your own um, in those situations. So you can see this part where, where parents are starting to get together um, to, to sort of mitigate some of these, uh, these circumstances. So there's all sorts of, all sorts of examples of, um, I think this is changing a little bit, um, but there's all sorts of examples where, um, you know, people get shamed for allowing their kids to walk to the store or use the subway or, or these, these types of things. So how do we, you know, how do we manage those things where the kids are getting some of their input? They're getting, they're, they're getting uh, the, the ability to, um, have these challenges and often as you can see they, they get a great sense of satisfaction and enjoyment when they accomplish it while while mitigating the other the, the other issues and the other risk factors that that might be affecting them um i think is, is where where it mm -hmm. sort of needs to go i know mm -hmm. at my daughter's school uh i don't know how many times and i don't think this has to do with the school it has to do with liability issues it has to do with parents but uh, they shut the school down so often um for spottings of a coyote for example Oh, right. Yes. Uh, you know, they're shutting down. They're not allowed. They're not when it's when it's wet out. They're not allowed on the they're not allowed on the on uh, the, the tarmac, black, the black tarmac. They're, they're not allowed to practice gymnastics. There's and I don't think what the school needs is, I think, more educated parents to say um, we're we're going to assume some of this risk um, for the benefit uh, of our children to to learn maximally and develop resilience and well-being and all the all the stuff that they, they, they really need to develop. But I think it has to come from educating parents first. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, I think that's where the major pressure is coming from in our institutions. Yes. Yes. I think you're right. And, and I think probably the institutions are, were responding to the parents. It was probably parents that were saying, how come I didn't know about that test or assignment? And so it was probably all that pressure. I, I have a, a friend who she was um, working in the college system as like a, an instructor and then took some time off and then went back to it after a number of years, right around when things were starting to change. This was kind of the early 2000s. And I don't know how long it had been, but I remember her being shocked. And she came to me and she said, um, you know, when kids go to college or university, like usually the parents aren't involved at all. But she said now what was happening was the dean was getting phone calls from parents. And this was a new thing. And now apparently it's from what I understand, it's commonplace or or there's more parents. That, and again, my parents would never um, even dream of calling <laughs> the university or or um, especially when you go to university or college. And so I think that's where maybe these institutions are now responding. And even watching my son going to um, university, there's like, you know, they're inviting the parents along. Like they had this day that like it was for the students. And I was about to, you know, I said, oh, there's this special day at the university. I'll drop you off. And then I read the thing and it said, and then I realized, oh, the parents are supposed to go too. <laughs> yes. And it's like, what is going on? I can't yeah. just drop I'm, you off. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So I think it's maybe it's in response then. So this is interesting that the parents are now saying, wait a minute, we need to, we need to now change things. Yes, based on based on yeah, the best the best outcomes for kids. And and reasonable people can disagree where that line is, where that line between harmful coddling is and, and effective support. I, you know, it's it, it may be different um depending on depending on the child and, and depending on, on the values of, of the of the parent. So I do want to say that. Like it's not a clear where exactly that is. But one of the things coming up, especially like the coddling is certainly happening in our in our um in our post-secondary um education area. So uh, you can you can see this as what they call concept creep. 
that physical safety, which was hugely successful. So physical safety led to like car seats and seat belts and getting rid of those lawn darts. You know, the safety, um, getting rid of leaded gasoline, like, you know, there's been plenty and uh, difference in, in cars and, you know, like, so this, this huge success, again, you don't build resilience by, by being, you know, necessarily impaled by a lawn dart, you know, you just want to get rid of some of those, um, you know, those, those, those physical safety type aspects. Yeah. And that physical safety as it, it started to turn a little bit and that became emotional safety. That yes. they didn't free of physical risk, but they had to be free of any sort of emotional risk. And we know, we do know that, that there's certain emotional abuse, emotional, that, that is as, as bad as, as physical, uh, physical abuse, but it's led to a little bit of emotional safety in the sense that they can never feel bad. They can never have failure. They can never have difficulty. And that's where we've gone. Like that concept creep at that point, you can see it's starting to go a little bit too far. And where it's happened now, particularly in our what we're what's we're finding in our post-secondary institutions, um, is ideological safety. Oh. That now people they don't just need physical safety, they don't just need emotional safety and never feeling bad, but now they 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 also have to be free from any idea that threatens them. And we say that leading to less resilience. That rather than just so we say safe spaces, you know, free of all these. So one of the things coming up there is like if you were talking about, for example, if you if you were in therapy and you're saying, you know, that thing that's bothering you or the thing that's troubling you the most, we're not going to talk about that. That's just going to be completely off the table. That's kind of what we're doing in a lot of um, educational environments now. It's like anything that's triggering or anything that's difficult, we're not going to talk about. Um, and it's not being effective. Uh, we're actually getting less resilient by, by not talking about those things. So one of the things they talk about is sharpening the saw is not just to be free of, of hearing things you don't like, but um, responding to them. like developing the, the capacity to respond to ideologies or ideas that you don't agree with. So a lot of psychological safety has taken too far. Psychological safety for some people means you never encounter an idea that threatens you. Right. Where true psychological safety is, you feel safe to not only express your opinion, but to criticize opinions, yes. to talk about failures, to talk about difficulties, to talk about difference. No learning can happen without conflict, either internal or external, and we're trying to get rid of the conflict and have more learning and development, and it's just not working. So we've got to get better at being able to um, discuss differences, uh, ideological differences. Ideological threats are not physical threats, and we've kind of made they're different. You get to talk to them, you get to talk back to them, you get to um, develop your competencies in terms of what you believe and, and, and what you think, your intellectual curiosity, your intellectual courage, your intellectual humility. You get a chance to develop all of these things that are really essential um, yes. development for resilience and flourishing in, in, in modern day, kind of modern day situations. Oh my goodness. Okay. There is so much in what you just said. I just want to unpack that for a minute. Um, so this whole idea of concept creep that our environmental safety, so taking taking those, you know, uh, merry-go-round things we used to play on out and fly off. <laughs> right. <laughs> and those really high monkey bars out of the playgrounds or, you know, adding seatbelts. Some of this is a good thing. And then that yeah. led to, although sometimes I think I look at these playgrounds now and it's like, they look like they're too safe. They're, they're too safe. Like they don't look very interesting for some of these kids. I feel sorry for them. I agree. I agree. Yes. And there's somebody just to put it in there. There's there some places now that are uh, developing environments where they know the certain fall that would lead to catastrophic injury. Um, so, but they have jagged uh, wilderness type environments with no ability to 
the insurance companies know how far you have to fall in order. So they develop oh. a maximum release so there can be no extreme injuries, but you still get the you still get the the chance for risks and scrapes and bruises. Oh, interesting. Okay. So that's a good, that's a move in the right direction then. So yeah. Yeah. They can't die. They can hurt themselves. (laughs) (laughs) I remember my son. Yeah. I remember my son falling off some monkey bars and uh, breaking his arm. And uh, But I remember at the time thinking it's shocking that they still have monkey bars in In, uh, yeah. in those playgrounds, uh, but they're definitely lower than they used to be. Um, so this whole idea of concept creep then. So envi- so we've made things environmentally safer, which some of them are good, like let's take lead out of paint and, and things like that. Right. Um, but then it led to emotional safety, which was like, oh, we can't upset anybody um, or have or feel bad, which isn't necessarily a good thing because if we it's good to experience as we know right our emotions and it's it's not we don't want to be completely bulldozing and clearing the path and then this whole idea now of you're calling it ideological safety where it's ideas um and i think when you were giving that talk one of the parents was saying there was a speaker at a university and the the students were trying to actually like I think it used to be students would maybe protest the speaker, but now they're actually trying to get the speakers disinvited if they yeah. have ideas that might make people feel uncomfortable. Yeah. It's yeah. fascinating to me. So this is concerning too, when you think of what's going on in the world, how, you know, this whole idea of how we can't um, like politics now, like it's, it's like, we can't even talk about it. Right. Or like, I I think with COVID, like it just got to be this thing where it's like, whether people agreed with vaccines or didn't. And then it was like, oh my goodness, we just can't even talk about politics or we can't talk about different ideologies. And so it, it seems like, but this is what I, my sense is, and you know more about this than I do, Greg. Um, So is this what is leading to us now having issues, even just being able to talk about public issues and, and what's happening in the world. Yeah. Some of the polarization, um, ironically, what they, what ironically, what they're finding is that when we have less problems and less issues, we tend to divide and group over trivial ones. So you you can, (laughs) you can see as, um, and we're more, as as they say, our moral reasoning, like why is our moral reasoning formed? Um, some people think, well, we're scientists, we're meant to find truth. Um, but what they found is that our moral reasoning was formed more as a as a virtue signal, as a badge of social membership. That I'm saying this because not because necessarily I believe it, but it may bond me to a certain group um, that will that that will sort of support me. So what we find is we're more lawyers than we are scientists if we're left to our evolutionary predispositions, and so. IQ predicts more my-sided arguments than other-sided arguments. We just get better at arguing our side. So you see as the information age comes in is that both sides are just being more equipped with more information where they're not getting more wisdom or seeing the other side of things. They're just getting more information to justify their particular view. And so, and, and you're in this situation, you find kids today. So usually they're at two threats. One, they've got the outside threat, the other ideology they don't agree with, so they're fighting them. They're bonded to a certain group that agree with them. But within this certain group, they're finding now is that the biggest ostracization is, is that if you don't agree with them 100%, your, your belonging is also at risk. Oh, like wow. you can't even have, have trivial differences. You will be ostracized unless you agree with everything uh, that they're doing. So you, you can see what a, what a difficult situation this is for, for, for particularly I mean, a group of youth to be in mm-hmm. where they're, 
one, they have these enemies, these outgroup enemies that they're they're part of, and they also risk being ostracized by their group if they misstep or if they don't agree 100%. Um, so what they talk about for wow. any progress needs imperfect allies, you know, like, you know, we agree on the majority of stuff, let's, you know, like, let's not just cancel and, and, and ostracize each other based on trivial differences. So that's a real conundrum then, because we're being rewarded for agreeing with our group, our social group. And then, and I think social media plays a role. And this is a like such a huge yeah. issue, issue, right? Where you're seeing more of the, the beliefs you have. So how do we, like going back to what we were talking about at the beginning, which is the whole like application of positive psychology. Yes, yeah, and yeah. so what can we do? What can we do as parents where, you know, we don't want our, we want our kids to be able to, um, you know, think about different ideologies. We want our kids to even the emotional safety or that, like you said, the psychological safety, like, I love that. It's like, instead of saying, I don't feel safe, like, um, it's to be able to say the safety. I I love that. And that's, and I'm doing work in psychological safety as well. And it's, it's the whole idea of, I can speak up. I can say, I disagree with you or, or we, you and I can have a conversation where we have a difference of opinion and, and, uh, and we feel safe doing so. So how do we go from like, this just seems like such a huge problem, but what do we do? (laughs) What do we do? (laughs) At least at, at the individual level, what can we do? We can't necessarily change all of society, but what can we do as parents? Parents, at least, or yes, as individuals. I, well, I think I, I think both is is one on the individual level is um, is this this level of shame resilience. You know this this ability to uh, show up as we are. You know, warts and all, to have the courage to be truly seen. I think that's one of the. This is what Louisa Jewell. I know you know well. Mm-hmm. Um, she this one always sticks out to me with psychological safety in other areas is to say that people aren't afraid to fail. They're afraid to fail in front of other people. Mm. And so the, the both and one is like increasing our personal resilience for shame, uh, for just trying our best and accepting where we're at and keep showing up. Um, you know, there's that we're worthy of love and belonging as long as we give our best and, and we show up. Um, the other aspect is creating, I think more importantly is creating environments where it's safe for interpersonal risk taking. It's safe to have uh, a different opinion, uh, that it's safe to criticize each other in service of one another. Um, Amy Edmondson did that, you know, that famous work on psychological safety and I always love this example is when she took that, the, the extreme cases of, again, she looked at hospitals and I didn't realize like the medication errors that were happening and mm. um, that was one of the biggest risk factors for morbidity and mortality in the, in, in the hospital uh, was the wrong medication um, and the wrong dosages. So she really looked at, um, you know, what's better is to have a zero tolerance policy because it's life or death. Like you can't make this mistake or is it better to um, not celebrate mistakes, but learn from mistakes um, yes. to say that it's okay and, and to develop them. In the original research, what they found was zero tolerance policy worked better, but she didn't trust the data. Uh, and they went back with a different measuring of the mistakes, the medication areas. And what they found was people weren't making less medication areas in, in zero tolerance environments. They were reporting less medication errors. They didn't even get a chance to talk about it. Wow. And in those environments, they found the nurses didn't feel safe. They knew the medication was wrong, but didn't feel safe expressing their concerns to the hierarchy or the physician that was overhead of them. Um, and so to feel safe to say, hey, this isn't working. This mm-hmm. is you know, to, to, to challenge authority. 
And so what they found is in the environments where they talked about mistakes is, um, and they, they had high expectations from try not to make mistakes, but high support, we're going to learn from them. And they had those environments where they said, we're going to learn from, you don't have to make mistakes. We're going to learn from the mistakes that other people's other people make, and we're going to come up with solutions towards them. We say those environments are far more conducive um, to learning, uh, to growth and to development. So how are we creating those environments where, where failure, <laughs> yes. interpersonal risk taking um, is, is encouraged uh, uh, to a certain Yes. Degree. Yes. Developing um, those failures, those environments that we can show up the way we want to. We're getting the, uh, we're getting the 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 inputs from everybody on on everything, and we're making decisions based on full information rather than people sitting on sitting on their ideas because they're afraid that they're you know it's not going to be heard or it's not going to be received well. So we're getting all that information on the the table, and we're we're working from that collective intelligence um, rather than just the individual expert. Yes. So this is amazing because there are so many links here because as parents making it safe for our kids to fail, making it safe for our kids. And, and also, and you'll see this more as you, you're, you have te- a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> I that, will, will I? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and I've talked to parents about, so we talk about psychological safety in the workplace. Yeah. Like it's better to be able to report errors because then we can learn from them and report failures. And also with our, our, our kids, right? Like, what did you learn from that? Like, what did you learn from that about when you didn't make the team? What did you learn when you failed that test or didn't get as high a mark on that assignment? So what did, so having that, as we taught, you've taught me growth mindset and fixed mindset, but interesting how, so as parents being open to that and creating that psychological safety, and then also for that to be happening in the workplace. And so making it safe for your kid I know a lot of kids won't tell their parents if they think like, if I tell my parents I failed um, or I tell my parents I messed up. So instead they hide it. So just like the employees hiding the errors from their employers, <laughs> you know, the kids are are then hiding. Um, so then we're not really doing anybody any favors when we, when we parent in that way. No, no. And, it, and Adam Grant points this out too in his book, Give and Take all the time. It's like, what do we, one of the things to, to ask for too is um, when we're particularly in hierarchical situations, what they find is like, who goes from, who goes from the mail room to the C-suite? Like who are the people that, and they did these studies on ingratiators, essentially, excuse me, ass kissers, you know, are they the <laughs> yeah. people that, that, that move up? Um, but typically what they find, one of the characteristics is, is the advice askers. The that, advice askers. Yeah. So if they're asking the people above them, whether it's in, in schools, it could be teachers or parents are saying, here's my situation. If you were me, what would you do? And so what ends up happening too, is you, you develop these relationships is that we have the Sigeric effect. If somebody invests some energy into you, they're more likely to invest energy into you in the future. So rather than making a sales pitch to them of what you need from them is ask their advice. Uh, once they've invested in it, you typically have, um, you know, a, a good start to um, somebody that's going to contribute to you later on. We underestimate the power of our social networks in terms of success. So, so one of the things is just getting kids to, to um, ask people above them, ask for advice, um, you know, rather than making requests, like, what would you do in my situation? Mm. Um, it, people love giving advice too. It usually they opens do. them up. It doesn't, yes. make them feel, it doesn't make them feel like you're asking something of them necessarily. Um, so, you know, one of those ways of, of, again, something we can teach our kids to, mm-hmm. um, to harness the, the wisdom of of, um, uh, of the people in their hierarchy. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. Yeah, I know. And like the teachers always love it when the kids ask questions, right? And and it's not that we're doing this in a manipulative way. Like we want them to be genuinely curious and and wanting and needing the advice. Yeah. 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 To learn from it. Yeah. yeah. And ignore and ignore anything that doesn't serve them as well. Like Yeah. Um, so what would you say to the parent um that is feeling like, and I know when you, when I heard you speak the first time about this whole idea of the over coddling or the, um, the uh, anti-fragility and you were talking about um, like, there was the mom who let her kid, I think they were nine or something. And they were like in New York city. And I have to say, I got a little, like, I live in a safe suburb, but at I I have been that parent that um, has had anxiety about my kids walking home sure. late in my safe town outside of Toronto, <laughs> and yeah. uh, or even you know like as your kid gets to be a teenager and they're like and especially when you have a daughter I have a daughter um, you know taking Ubers home late at night and so I I do get nervous about that and there's a side so there's how do we reconcile this side of us that you know, we want our kids to be resilient and we want to give them these experiences, but our anxiety as a parent, like I know I can, my head can go to a million places of all the things that can go wrong. And then you think, oh, God forbid, I'm this parent who is, um, you know, I'm promoting anti-fragility and we probably need a disclaimer on this podcast. Yes. <laughs> <You know? laughs> only do what you feel is totally safe. <laughs> um, right? Like you want to do this, but uh, and I know I like when you heard when, and I feel like you're more on the side of like, cause when you told that story, I was like, I don't know, Greg, like I still, there's no I'm, way I would do that with my kid. Um, yeah. How do you, I guess, so how do you do how, what would you say to a mom like me that I, I I'm buying into this. I love the idea. I want my kids to be resilient, re- resilient and strong, but I'm a worrier and I, I don't want them to get hurt or um, yep. in danger. One thing, if it's not broken, don't fix it, right? It's it, we're talking about people that that it, it's the coddling to the level of risk factor. So if your children are resilient and and well, then you know keep doing what you're doing. You know, there's no need to to sort of fix it. It's just the the general trend. One of the things that's helpful, and I know this this, <laughs> and I this is what I got remind myself of all the time is just, you know, what is the real risk? Is that it's safer than any time in history. Stranger abductions are incredibly rare. So uh, Jonathan Haidt gives the example that they use the the average statistics. They say if you left a child in the Walmart parking lot in the average American city, how long would it take before your child is abducted based on stranger uh, uh, abduction rates? And so I don't know, I give the listeners a chance to guess, but um, when you when you use the statistics of the actual rates of stranger adoption, you'd have to leave your child in the Walmart parking lot for seven hundred thousand years before uh, before they're abducted, according to to Jonathan Haidt. Wow. Um, so one thing is like our our reactions are disproportionate to the risk, but that risk, like the what if I'm I'm well, it's same. like what if I'm that one parent? What if that's what if that I'm- one day, that one situation, right? And I'll never forgive myself, right? Like right. I'll never that's what you say that. as a parent. Yes. And so Jonathan Haidt and others give some examples of what possible mitigating ways to do that now. Like so he says with his kids, they, you know, they they have cell phones now. So 
It's like, here, you know where to call if you get lost and you come back or the emergency aspect of call if anything happens. And so there's some, or, <laughs> or the, um, you know, the, the, the perception of freedom, right? Like where you are watching them or, or keeping an eye on them or while they, while they have this, you know, again, it could be manipulative, but while they have this seemingly um, um, ability to do it on their own, um, so I think there are ways or like like the parents did where the parents get together and they mitigate the factors. They've got a gym. They you know, they're the, the risk factors are gone, but still the free play is there, for example. Yes. So, you know, like there there are ways to to do it where it's balancing both, where I think like you and I, I you know, may make us feel better about it overall, where they're getting some of the inputs without the risk. Yes. So there's, it's kind of that middle ground, right? Like how do you, and, and they earn their, you know, um, as they get older, right? They, they right. earn more and more responsibility and more freedom. And I have to say cell phones have been helpful in that way in terms of, um, I mean, they're good and bad, right? Like I think we went out and our parents couldn't reach us. So we weren't worried. I was talking about this with my friends the other day. We were like, you know, um, it's so funny. Like when your kids first go off to university, it's like, you know, you want them to text you or call you. And it's like, it's almost too easy, right? It's not like you have to wait for the payphone. or with us, it was long distance. And so we may not you know, all those, it was so expensive to call long distance. Yeah. Like your parents weren't expecting a lot of communication, right? Whereas no. now it's like, why haven't they texted me? Like it's been a day, it's been two days. So, but it can be good, um, you know, to be able to say just, you know, and I know with, with my kids getting older, it's just, well, just, you know, like, let me know, like text me if, you know, if you're going to be past a certain time or text me if you decide to, you know, if you're, something is changing, um, just let me know. So, um, so that I'm aware. And, uh, so, so it's, um, so in some ways it's a good thing, but I just want to say, and, and there's a couple more questions I want to ask you. And one is, I want to talk to you a little bit about social media, because you and I had a conversation about this and I hope it's okay. I, I think it's okay. Yeah, please. You. Yeah, yeah. So you said this at the, in your talk, you were, and I know, um, I don't know if it's Jonathan Hayter, Adam Grant, they've been talking about, one of them has been talking a lot about social media and these, and cell phones. So, yeah. and I know every time parents are asking, how do I get my kid off the phones? Is social media good? Is it not good? And in our session, you said, um, it's really best if you can keep your kids off. I think you said social media, uh, maybe even without a phone, correct me if I'm wrong, until they're 17. And I went, I didn't say anything when you were up there in front of the parents, but I came yeah, up yeah. to you afterwards because our children are <laughs> different in different age. age. And yeah, I yeah. said to you, um, Greg, good luck with that. <laughs> <laughs> As a parent yeah. of two, uh, two now yeah, adult yeah. kids, uh, good yeah. luck with that. Like, I do not know how you're going to navigate that. Um, but yeah, so say more about that because I think, yeah, so you and I kind of like, it'll be funny to see how it, it does turn out with your, your daughter. Um, this, maybe we'll have to have you back on when she's, you know, if I, this podcast yes. is still going, um, when she's a teenager. <laughs> yes. But, and it, and it is social media more so than, than the, the, the cell phone. So okay. I, I'll go in with some of them too. It's like, um, the anxiety and depression rates go up for every, so screen time, not all screen time is equal. For every uh, up to up to two hours seems seems all right, but every minute after the two hours of screen time a day, um, anxiety and depression rates seem to seem to increase. Okay, sorry. Can we go back to that? So I just want to be really clear because I have questions about this. So yeah. more than two hours of screen 
like under two hours of screen time a day doesn't affect mental health negatively, but over two hours. And when you say screen time, is that social media or texting or both? Or like, what if they're watching a YouTube video or do you know, like what? Yeah. Yeah. So not all screen time is equal. So like if you're FaceTiming grandma and grandpa, for example, you know, that, that doesn't seem to have as big an effect. If you're texting, uh, doesn't seem to be a big deal in terms of, of mental health. Um, you know, if you're if you're learning online, um, doesn't seem to have as as, as big of uh, of effect. The the biggest effect seems to be social media, um, and particularly aspects of social media. Um, and what's interesting too, in terms of screen time, is they say it's not necessarily the screen time that's the problem, but also what it's replacing. So. Mm-hmm what they find is the most highly social kids. And these are kids that have real friendships, they're real interactions. Like they're going outside, they're, they're playing together, spending time together. Um, as long as that input is there, um, they seem to be able to spend as much screen time, you know, in the meantime, extra screen time without it affecting them. So also what is it replacing? Is it replacing outdoor activities with other people? I mean, that, that also has a, a kind of big effect on it. Social media seems to be the worst. This is where we have this big, um, you know, fear, not just fear of missing out, but fear of being left out, um, social comparison. It, it appears to be affecting girls, uh, young women, more than men. Uh, this is true that uh, aggression rates are the same in men and women. It's just expressed differently. So for, for younger boys, um, usually it's physical. <laughs> so if they're, if they're bully or somebody they're having a problem with, when they come home, they're safe. Uh, for for our younger women, it seems to be relational aggression is how it's expressed. So your mm-hmm. reputational attacks, you know, the the undermining, the missing out on groups, that sort of thing. So it's kind of like constantly in their pocket all the time. So it seems to disproportionately be affecting um, our women in terms of missing out, social comparison, and relational aggression that that's happening over over that. So um, so some of the the general recommendations are. Um, the social media stuff up till 17 is because they can tell when, when people got smartphones and mm-hmm. uh, in those moments and those people that got social media and smartphones after, uh, after the age of say grade, grade 11, 17, somewhere around there, they didn't have the mental health outcomes that the people that got it before that did. So that's where that threshold comes in mm. for my daughter. I, I think I told you this too, is that what I'm hopeful is, is that the research on the effects of social media will be so strong that there will be some regulations. There will be some changes either from the companies or other that, that address, uh, the address the significant issue that is happening. Um, and today there is a risk. So you are risking your social connections, which is a huge part of, of your, your child's experience if they're not on these things. And so they, they do warn taking it away from them um, you know, without without thinking about their social connections or how it impacts that right. uh, as well can have a profound impact on uh, on their social well-being as well. So there's no good answers. Um, again, uh, some of the experts are suggesting that a bunch of parents, so whether the parents say is like, if nobody has it um, of this friend group, then nobody has to worry about it. They can text each other, but they're not on social media. So some schools are getting together and trying to get the coalition of the willing to say, if nobody has it, then it's all equal again in terms of relationships. And so you can see that emerging now, but I'm hoping there'll be some broader, yes, <laughs> broader things where I won't have to worry about it. Uh, you know, by the time uh, my daughter's turning eight in, in August. So by the time my daughter is uh, yeah. you know, around that age. Yeah. I am. I 
hope for that too. I wish that for her and for that generation, because I remember you talking about this being the great social experiment. And I realized my kids were part of that great social experiment. Um, They were right at that age. And we are seeing like with that generation, right? So um, the detrimental impact. So um, I have quoted you a number of times as much as I came up to you and said, I don't know, Greg, I have told <laughs> lots of people, I've said, you know, Greg, Greg Evans says like his hope is that they'll, they'll see that all this social media, the detrimental impact it has that, that this, it will change for this next generation. And I really, truly hope that it does. And as you know, cause you, um, I did my VS strengths questionnaire with you the very first time. Hope is my number one. Uh, signature strength. <laughs> so I'm holding lots of hope out that that, uh-huh. uh, that that's the case. And I think it was, I don't know if it was Jonathan Haidt, there was an article in the Atlantic, it was about how they're talking about having locked bags, at least when the kids go to school, either a locked bag or little, it's so funny, they're going to, I don't know how much money they're going to spend on these, but they're going to like maybe build cell phone lockers. So like you actually have to, like they're allowed to have their phone till they get to school. Have you heard about this? No, I haven't. No, that, yeah, so new. this is new. Like it just came out. I don't know. It's just really recent. I'll have to try to find it. Um, maybe we'll put it in the show notes. But it was about, um, yeah, that the kids will go to school and they're going to lock their phones up in a locker or in a, these bags that like a Ziploc bag, imagine with a lock on it or something. And they have to leave them, I guess, in the office or wherever. And then they get to pick it up at the end of the day. And right. even that, I love that because my, I said to my, my son, like, what, so what happens at school now? He said, like, remember in between classes in high school, that's when you're chatting and you're talking and you're socializing or at lunch, kids have their phones. And so rather than talking to other students, I mean, not that they aren't, but it's really easy. Like, oh, if no one's talking to me or I'm in the cafeteria eating alone, I'm just going to pull out my phone. I don't have to talk to anybody. So I'm hopeful that I I would love to see that, at least that implemented, that there's no phones during the the school day. You can see, yeah, it's so strong in terms of the dopamine response and the motivational response to to do it is we, we in some ways, I do believe you could protect them from themselves and us from ourselves yeah. uh, with these things. Is there's two super? I don't know if you're familiar with this concept of. I think this is one of the issues now. And you know me, I like I, I'm a fan of evolutionary psychology. So I, what what they're being developed now is what they call super stimulus. So there are certain things. So one example is herring gulls. So herring gulls. Um, I guess they 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 know their their mother where they get their uh, the chicks that they, they they get their food from, um, but there's a little um, red dot that that tells them that that this this is where they get their food from, and they've been able to manipulate it so they will prefer and they'll to put this, this these little stripes on a needle with with an extra red dot, and the the herring gulls uh, chicks will prefer the 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 fake mother to the actual mother. Um, because of the super stimulus. And I'm getting somewhere with that with, with, there's all sorts of super stimulus now that we're getting, we're hitting on the evolutionary needs. So uh, social media is social connection. Mm -hmm. We have a strong needs for social connection. So now we have like a very easy way to to sort of so-called connect with people, but we're not getting any of the benefits. So we're getting all of the super stimulus without the benefits it was meant to bring. Wow. Same thing with pornography, for example. It's like, Mm -hmm. You, you get the super stimulus with all the uh, most of the happiness and the well-being comes from intimacy and from uh, reciprocal relationships and and developing that you know compassionate type of love like that usually is, is part of it. Um, but you got the super stimulus now where you get the super stimulus without all the benefits it was meant to bring. 
Um, and so you can see the world now really playing on our evolutionary predispositions in a way that's no longer serving us. So one of the things that I really think about is how are we setting up our, our, our environments? How are we setting up our, wor our worlds that are hitting on our core brain needs better? Um, you know, where we're actually getting what it's meant, um, you know, to, to fulfill those kind of evolutionary core brain needs in this modern day environment. Because we've got this ancient neural wiring in this modern environment, and sometimes they're just not, they're either being manipulated or they're just not matching up in a way that's working for us. Wow. Yeah. And that's, that scares me. And I'm glad though, that there's people researching it and identifying what's happening so that we can, we can hopefully do something about it. And I think that's important to know as parents that this is, you know, they talk about how these um, Silicon Valley, um, the people that create a lot of these things, they don't oh, yeah. give their kids phones they and iPads because yeah. they know this psychology behind it, this evolutionary psychology, they know. And it is, it's almost like social media is that brighter red dot, right? How do we, how do we stimulate, how do we um, get addicted to the dopamine or get those dopamine hits? So, so it's so good as a parent to be aware. And I think um, what I'm coming away with this, Greg, is that with all of this, it's being a conscious mindful parent yeah with all of this like knowing what's going on and and really being mindful and conscious about the way you're parenting in this in this modern world that we're in and i also think the benefits of like the, some of the times the things that we think are going to lead to increased well-being are not the things that do or resilience um one of the things is also looking at uh, rather than what we think is what does the evidence show you know kids in this situation versus the other like what what are the benefits that that'll give us far more insight to ourselves than often what we think because again as you said like we good intentions like we feel it and we, we're not doing it on purpose but you know again it's just, just better information um i think too on on what leads to it and that's why that's why you know our this field is, is so exciting is, is mm -hmm. we don't necessarily have to guess we can we can we or have ideologies around it we can we can look at what works mm-hmm so Greg, oh my gosh. So see, this is what happens to us. We can talk all day. Yeah. So yeah, picture, where this would end picture up. 25 people like me and Greg, poor Greg, our teacher, <laughs> us asking all these curious questions. Oh, um, yeah, that's what that's, you're getting a little taste of it here. Um, so Greg, I ask all my guests, what's one thing that um, you recommend that can most um, help women flourish. But for you and for my other male guest, Dan, we ch we've changed the question to um, what's one thing that you um, rec most recommend that can help people flourish in their lives, male or female or, or any gender? If you, do you mind if I have two? I'll, I'll try yes, one. Yes, you, you can have focus. a... Yeah. It's coming from... Um, one of the things that I'm concerned about too is just is just a parental guilt, parental burnout, uh, particularly mom guilt and burnout. So one of the points I just want to be made too is that, um, and we talked about this, um, some of the anti-fragility stuff was that uh, stay-at-home moms in 1963 um, spent less time with their kids than working moms do today. Wow. So, so say that again. So stay-at-home moms in 1963, they were stay-at-home moms. They spent less time with their kids than... Than working moms do today. Wow. Uh, so working moms today spend more actual interaction time with their kids than, than stay-at-home moms did in 1963. So one of the things I want to say is like we feel so guilty about our parents. We want to give our kids the best. Um, sometimes the best strategy is to do nothing, is to give them the chance 
give them the chance to kind of, uh, within certain parameters, of course, but to, to flourish themselves and not to take all of that guilt on um, yourself in terms of, of actually working, uh, working women and stay-at-home stay moms that are doing so much and feeling like they're not enough. Uh, one of the things I want to say is like, you're doing more than enough. And sometimes it's even harmful if you're doing so much. Um, so, you know, it's just to bring it back a little bit sometimes too, with, with sort of realistic expectations and, and allowing them, allowing them the opportunity to fail and, and to have free play and to do things on their own and to be bored and, you know, to all those things, not to be overscheduled or organized um, um, might be beneficial uh, for that part. In terms of the one skill, I always go with, I get overwhelmed. Maybe it's just me, but I get overwhelmed with all the things I'm supposed to be doing in terms of, I do better when I focus uh, on doing more by doing less. So um, I focus, my advice usually is keystone habit, is for everybody to find that particular habit that makes all their other sort of positive habits fall in line. Uh, For me, it's exercise. Exercise is not my purpose. It's not why I, I live, but when I prioritize exercise, I, I work better. I sleep better. I eat better. I'm a more present parent. You know, um, I think better. Like, so by prioritizing that, I, other things tend to fall in line. Um, so for other people, it might be meditation or it might be social interaction or it might be sleep or it might be nutrition, but whatever it might be, like to find that one thing um, to focus on that helps everything else fall in line, getting more by doing less. I think that's what, you know, the general recommendation for, for people to flourish. Mm. Oh, that's so good. I love that the keystone habit. And I that so the one habit that makes all the other habits fall into place. And for me, it's exercise too. And I've, I've fallen yeah. off the exercise bandwagon lately. So um, because of stress, probably too, right? Yeah, busy, because you're so overwhelmed. Yeah, there's yeah, no yeah. time to exercise. Uh, yeah. So thank you for that. I think you're you're so right. And I think that's a great way to not feel so overwhelmed is just to choose that one thing that that will help you. Um, so great. Thank you. And I, I love, I, I'm like, where were you when my kids were little? And I would have loved to have heard that stat about the stay-at-home mom yes. spending, <laughs> spending uh, less time than yeah. today. Yeah. So, so to let go of some of that guilt. So thank you so much, Greg. Um, thank you so much for being a guest on the show. And how can people connect with you? Because I know um, the work you do in the world, whether people are looking for maybe um, a speaker or work, the work that you do in organizations, like how how can people get connected with you? Um, probably the best way is, um, uh, is I've, I've got a couple couple emails, but uh, you can reach me at uh, probably easiest one to remember is greg at the flourishing center, um, dot com or, or, or my Gmail one too, which I, I, I check quite often is at gregory.wayne.evans at, uh, at gmail.com. That's okay. Easy. Great. So I'll put those in the show notes. So if people want to find out more about the work that you do and connect with you, then they can, they can do that. And yeah, the flourishing center, I should say that is, um, that's where, uh, we did the certificate in applied positive psychology. And Greg is a, a faculty member of the, of the flourishing center. So, um, thank you again, Greg, for being on the show. Thanks for listening to the She Flourishes podcast. I hope this episode has inspired you to keep on creating the flourishing life you deserve. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend who would benefit from it. And remember to subscribe, rate, and review this podcast wherever you're listening. To learn more about how you can live a flourishing life, head over to brendajasmine.com or follow me on Instagram at underscore brendajasmine. 
Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode. In the meantime, keep on sharing your gifts with the world. See you soon.